Glad you could join us here for another episode of Cranford Radio. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. We've talked about a lot of different subjects on Cranford Radio, but we've not really gone into depth on the topic of ecology. My guest today is a perfect person to introduce us to that topic. It is Dr. Daniela Shevitz. She is a professor and chair of the Department of Environmental and Sustainability Sciences at Kane University. She is also a board member of the Hanson Park Conservancy and a resident of Cranford. Daniela, welcome to Cranford Radio. Thank you so much, Bernie. I'm so honored to be here, and it's a privilege. I'm very excited about that. Great to have you here. And as I said in the intro, we really have not touched in depth on ecology. And I want to talk about it from a, a couple of different perspectives, some of what you are teaching and your students are learning, but also about Cranford's ecology and to understand that a little bit better. Why don't we start, though, talking about you? Tell me about where you grew up and how did you get involved with this field? Sure, thank you. Um, this is my 18th year I'm going into here as a Cranford resident. So this has become my home. And believe it or not, it's the longest time I've ever spent anywhere before moving here. So I'm really happy to call Cranford my my home. I'm originally from the Lower East Side of Manhattan and then grew up, most of my childhood was spent just north of there in Spring Valley, New York. So I'm a child of the suburbs for the most part, and really became inspired by environmental science by um, having parents who were very in tune with their environment. Uh, my mother would clean up litter. My father would tell me stories about beautiful places around the world. And we were very fortunate to travel. So I, I fell in love with the entire planet and really kind of found myself wanting nothing more than to save it. So in seventh grade, I wrote a book report about how I was going to work for Greenpeace and be a biology professor and save the planet. And I've been on a single track ever since then. So I'm I'm pretty dedicated to environmental science, not just for my job, but for my entire livelihood and my my identity as well. When I was looking at a little bit of your resume that's online, one of the things that it talked about that you're involved with medicinal botany as mm, well as yeah. ethnobotany. Tell us a little bit about what those are. Sure. So I really am inspired by other cultures and how people from around the entire planet have connected with their environment and the respect that people who have evolved as indigenous people through their connection to the earth has kind of created their own identity. So an ethnobotanist is someone who looks at that relationship between people and their environment, not just for plants that are used as medicines, but also for uh, spirituality, for basket, for food, and also that connection that people have had just to survive, but also to create their traditions based on the plants and animals that surround them. And we see this in, with indigenous people from around the entire planet, and oftentimes they have to manipulate the environment in order to get the plants that they need for food or for medicine. And so that includes things such as setting low intensity fire to kind of recycle nutrients and create the perfect environments. It includes knowing when and where to hunt for the right game and to fish. And so looking for those environmental cues to trigger your entire livelihood through. So for me as an ethnobotanist, I love working with people no matter where they are and looking at the connections between people and their environment. And here in Union County, New Jersey, where we are in one of the most densely populated parts of the most densely populated state, it's really looking at how we are connecting with our environment in, in urban areas. So getting people outside to do some local restoration activities or really connecting with our remaining 
parks and trying to plant trees and trying to take advantage of things like bird watching and just going for hikes. So those connections really help to create a livelihood in a suburban area where you're not disconnected. And so my job as a professor and as a researcher is to try to foster those connections between people and their environments, oftentimes in places where they're lacking, like Union County. Well, talking about Union County, I don't know if you get much into the historical part of Union County in terms of before the white settlers moved in here, we had the Lenape. Do you have any information about how they treated the environment and what role it played when they were living in this area? Yeah, very much so. And I do want to clarify that many of them are still here, right? So the Lenape Lenape are a big part still of New Jersey. Um, Even though they're not federally recognized, they are state recognized. And so I've been speaking with some friends who are Lenape about the importance of land acknowledgements for them and really kind of making sure that we're all reconnecting with the fact that we are on land that was taken from the indigenous people who are here. And they very much now still feel connected to the land in the way that they always have, except it's a much different environment. We've contaminated it. We've really treated our land in such an awful way. And so there was indigenous burning practices here. Really, it was a lot of gathering, a lot of hunting, and also traditionally kind of making sure that there was a lot of dynamics within the different sects or what we call tribes. And so really, people are still struggling to find those connections with the environment, but there are many people who are still here who have had it for thousands of years. I just recently spent some time, I was very fortunate to spend a day with Tyrese Gould, who is Lenape, who lives in the southern part of New Jersey, and she is trying to reclaim new property as a traditionally managed farm in South Jersey. So actually past Philly, um, way far away. Um, And really kind of looking at having it be an area where she could go back to traditional means of like permaculture and organic farming and kind of having that as a resource for the local people. So yeah, so I think that especially here in New Jersey, where we've become so disconnected, it's important to recognize that there are many people who are still connected and kind of recognizing the importance of helping those connections when we can. One thing that is still here that was here at the time of the Lenny Lenape people is the Rawway River. Of course, it wasn't called the Rawway River back then. What kind of role did that play? Was it transportation? Was it something that also provided their food? These days, we've got the state stocking it with trout. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine there were fish that were naturally living in that river back at that time. Yeah, we have had a huge effect, not just on our land, but on our water. Um, And we can definitely see that in the railway and many other rivers. Of course, these were navigable and they were great sources of food. I'm at King University today and we are right along the Elizabeth River, which was also navigable. And amazingly, this water used to freeze, right? So I'm sitting across the street from what used to be an ice house where they would create a reservoir and it would freeze and provide ice. So much has changed. We could imagine when we go through old archives and old records that this whole area was much more pristine. And of course, the rivers were fresh, were full of fresh fish that would migrate. And we've unfortunately contaminated so much of that. We've not only changed the level of our water, but we've also changed the chemistry of our water tremendously. 
through everything from this, the salt that we put on our roads to the fertilizers and that we put on our lawns, all of that goes directly into our stream. So when we do look at the rivers and the railway is no exception, and we see litter in there filled with plastic, that is tragic. And that is a major, major issue for facing biodiversity. But that's just one form of the pollution that we see. There's a lot of pollution that we do not see. And that has profound influences on what could survive there, including our fish. Having grown up in Cranford back in the 1960s, we would play down by the river. The fishermen would build dams across the river with stones and things of that sort. Within my lifetime, going back to the 1950s and 60s up to today, would you say the Rowway River in Cranford is cleaner or worse than it was at that time? That is a really terrific question, and I wish I had an answer for that, and I don't. I will say that it's different types of contamination. We are aware, humanity is aware of a lot more than we were back in the 50s and 60s, right? So people were dumping, but at the same time, we have so many more people here than we did in the 50s and 60s. And so all of us are making choices every single day that affect our river, whether we know it or not. My son this afternoon is actually working at the canoe club in town. And I love that because I love that he and anyone who's going there is really kind of connecting with the river and understanding the importance of taking care of it. At the same time, when we don't see it, we usually don't pay attention to what we put on our lawn, right? So people are spraying for mosquitoes all the time around our town. And all of that affects not just mosquitoes, it affects the bees that we need to pollinate our crops. It affects our water. It affects our soil. And ultimately, it therefore affects us as well. And so we are all making these decisions and not taking the environment into account very often. And tragically, that is having a profound effect on our rivers. But at the same time, the large companies that were dumping back in the 60s, 70s are now being monitored by the Clean Water Act which was not part of our judicial system back then. And so we do know that a lot is being regulated in ways that it wasn't before. But with the huge amount of people that are here driving so many more cars and really relying on so many more resources, I would venture to guess that our water pollution is actually tragically worse off now than it would have been back in the 50s and 60s. Well, certainly one thing that is worse this summer than it has been I think in any of our lifetimes, is air quality. I was looking at a video that you had recorded a number of years ago where you were talking about wildfires in Australia and what that was doing to the ecosystem in Australia. Well, this year, we've had very up-close and personal experience with the effects of wildfires in Canada and how that has sent smoke at times into our area. I think we set records not the kind of records you want to set for the worst air quality ever recorded in this area. Sometimes things like that, they seem like they're so out of our control. There's nothing we can do. Tell us a little bit about things like that, wildfires and how we can react to those. So I think the wildfires are an important example of how the whole globe is connected, right? And so we often see that we think that the lives that we lead here in Cranford are not connected to the rest of the globe. And nothing like wildfire smoke from Canada affecting us here in New Jersey is as strong of a reminder than what we're seeing. What's happening is that all of the time that we spend 
burning fossil fuels, no matter what we do that contributes to the burning of fossil fuels, we're adding carbon to our atmosphere. And there is an inextricable link between the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and the globe warming. And so what we've seen is that even just this week, just yesterday, we have broken the record for the hottest day on record since we've been recording temperatures. And so this is a global problem. You could imagine that if you were going to have a fire in your fire pit in your backyard, you want the wood to be hot. You want it to be hot and you want it to be dry as well, right? So no moisture. So if you consider a world that is increasing in heat and also we're facing droughts in much of the planet, when you do get a lightning bolt or something to ignite a fire, it's going to become out of control very quickly. And what we've done on our planet is that for the past couple of hundred years, we've been petrified of fire. And so we would frantically put it out as sort of through the U.S. Forest Service here in the United States. And Canada had a very similar fire suppressant policy. And so the policy would be to put out fires immediately. But what that did is that it didn't allow fire, which is a natural dynamic part of our environment, to take care of any of the dead wood that would be sitting in the forest. And so instead of recycling those nutrients in a very low intensity way, by putting out the fire all of those hundreds of years, that wood accumulates on the forest floor. And so when there is a fire today in 2023, it often gets way too hot, way too quickly, and there's no way to control it. And so that's what we're dealing with here in Canada. I'm sure we're going to be dealing with with it a lot in our country too, Uh, just as we have every other year, right? There's constantly wildfires happening. And now they're just getting so intense that we can't control them. Um, This really started becoming very apparent back in the 1980s with like the Yellowstone fire. I remember that was a very pivotal point in my life too, because I saw this fire as one that people couldn't control. And it was really powerful for me. Um, And it's part of the reason why for my PhD, I studied that link between indigenous people and fire. I was very curious to see about how can we bring back that sustainable use of fire to help maintain biodiversity and manage for biodiversity and stop or prevent these more intensive high severity fires from happening. So yeah, so we're dealing with the climate with increasing drought, increasing temperatures, and therefore increasing wildfires. And unfortunately, I don't think they're going to be controlled anytime soon unless people start really as a globe collectively making decisions that prioritize the environment. So limiting our impact, and that will come in the form of driving less, right? Conserving energy, conserving water. So making those choices every day do we really need to buy that extra shirt? Do we really need to, you know, import all of our goods? So what can we do to really try to limit our impact? And a lot of it comes back to the choices that you and I make every single moment. And we are just one of 8 billion people on our planet who are making those choices. You're teaching young people there at Kane University. I believe your son just graduated from Cranford High School he this did. past Thank month. You. Yeah. Congratulations to him. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) What are you hearing from young people in terms of their knowledge and appreciation of ecology? And are they a hope for the future after perhaps older generations have not done as much as they should have? Yeah. And I do apologize to my children regularly and say, I'm sorry, we didn't do nearly as much as we should have. And 
this generation feels it. So this generation of our kids, I feel like they are much more in tune with not just climate change, but everything to do with environmental degradation, right? And so they're seeing it at rates that we did not see because of the actions that we did as children. And so I would say I'm very inspired by the kids, not just from Cranford, but also the ones who come into my classrooms from Kane. But they're concerned about the environment. The question is, are they willing to make sacrifices for it, right? And so we love our technology. We love the freedom to make choices and live the way we want to live. And so while there is awareness there, a lot of people unfortunately have the opinion still that they can't do anything to change things for the better. So but it doesn't really matter. And that's really wrong. When you have everybody making that choice to keep living as they want to be living without considering the environment, that's going to continue to lead us down this path. We are, we've been at a pivotal point. And unfortunately, I don't see, I'd love to be seeing more of a shift. I have to say, you know, my my son did graduate from Cranford. Uh, he took environmental science. He loved environmental science and it was a great class. But one of the things that I'm really excited about happening at the state level is that Bill Murphy had put in a policy that says that K-12 education needs to incorporate climate change. And this was put into place just before COVID, and I think COVID kind of threw it off track. We really need to get back there. So I believe that we need to be talking about climate change in all of our classes through K-12 education so that people understand that it's connected to everything. It's not just a standalone environmental science class. It's not just a standalone science class. It connects to everything that we do, and it will for our foreseeable future. So I really believe that we need to do more. While I'm inspired by my students and by our kids and by our school system, I think that there's still so much more work to be done. I want to wrap things up by asking you, again, focus back on Cranford. We talked about it being a densely populated county within a, the most densely populated state in the nation. But are there ecological surprises that people who live in Cranford might not be aware of, things that are in Nomahegan Park, for example, or just along the Rollway River, since that wends its way all through town that, wow, I never knew that. Things things that would make people say that. Mm. Well, I love Nomahegan. I actually say, I think I'm there at least four or five days a week walking around um, because it's where I connect with my community and with myself too. So I really love uh, everything about it. It is in bad ecological shape. Uh, so it, as an ecologist, when I walk around, I see a lot of invasive plants, but I also do see some natives that are still there. And by native plants, I mean plants that have always been in this area, or at least for the past, you know, since before European settlement. And so I'm most surprised and most inspired by the people who use the park and by people who clean up litter in the park and by people who connect with the river, whether it's through a canoe or just kind of going for their walk. Ecologically, it is a home for so many birds. I'm always really excited to see the egrets or the great blue herons there. I mean, oh my gosh, those are inspiring. And I just love that people get out there and enjoy it. So there are many different species that call Nomahegan home. I think we just need to kind of respect them. I see raccoons there often, fox there, right? It's pretty abundant with life. And I think we're very lucky to have it in our community. And we should cherish that. 
Well, I want to thank you for being my guest here on the Cranford Radio Podcast. We've been talking with Dr. Daniela Shabitz. She is a professor and chair of the Department of Environmental and Sustainability Sciences at Kane University. Daniela, again, thank you so much for being my guest. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Bernie.